Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And as we come and become part of his family, his church, we say with Jesus, I will build my church. And we partner with him in doing that. And so we've been looking at what is the church. We've been looking at what is the church and we've seen that it is God calling people out of the world into his family through faith in his son Jesus. Let's read this verse together, shall we? He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. That is Paul's declaration of, I will build my church. I will build Christ's church. I will partner with the Lord in seeing the building up of the body of Christ. That's a commitment that each of us is called to take. It's easy for us to, I guess, sit back. There was a time when there is a particular denomination that would set aside individuals as being particularly holy, as having done a particularly great work, and they would call them saints, as though this was something unusual. The scriptures, the Bible, the New Testament calls everyone in Christ a saint. A saint is simply someone who is set apart for Christ by a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's you if you've come to believe in Jesus. It is all those who have come to know Christ and have been set apart for the work of God by the Holy Spirit of God. To this end I strenuously contend that was these ladies over the weekend, <laughs> strenuously contending. That's the worship team practicing and, and leading us in worship. That's your staff as they, as they try to lead in different programs. And, and the folks who get the building ready. And the folks who are out there mowing lawn and caring for everything so that when we come on a Sunday, everything looks great. And we think it just stays that way. <laughs> Miraculously. But it's people strenuously contending with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in us. And some days that's harder than others. It really is. If anyone told you that the Christian life is easy, they lied. Some people have erroneously said, oh, you just became a Christian because you can't face the difficulties of life. And I think, what planet are you on? <laughs> you have no idea. When I became a Christian, the battle began. 
Not only did I have to deal with everything I dealt with before, but now I'm aware of the, the conflict between the Spirit of God and my old nature, which wants me to still live the life I used to live and sin as I once used to sin. But now I have to deal with that, but I have to allow God to convict me and to guide me and to teach me so that I can live as a child of God, not as a child of Satan. If you think that's easy, you ain't begun yet. It's time to start the Christian life. I will build my church. I will build Emmanuel Baptist. I will build the body of Christ as it gathers here at Emmanuel by protecting the unity that is here, that the Holy Spirit has given. This is what we looked at last week. And we saw that we can protect the unity of Christ's church by acting in love towards other members. We can protect the unity of the church by refusing to... And that should be the only time you use that word. <laughs> And I will protect the unity of the church by supporting the leadership. And in a way, that's what we're talking about tomorrow night as well. How do we support leadership? We looked at those and we thought about those. And today we want to look at how we can build the church, how we can be an effective member of the body of Christ here at Emmanuel. And I'm not talking about formal membership versus uh, adherent or, or anything like that. I'm talking about being part of the body of Christ as we worship here together. And I'll let the Spirit of God speak to you as to whether you need to be a formal member. But I'm talking about being a part of the family of God as we gather together here at Emmanuel. How can we build the, the body of Christ? By sharing in the mission of the church. By sharing in the mission of the church. It's interesting as I was looking at this and thinking about it, I see there are three areas that we want to look at this morning about the mission of the church. The first one is by praying for its growth and its spiritual health. Praying for one another. By inviting others to attend. And by warmly welcoming all. That's interesting. That's mission. Praying, inviting, welcoming. It's, it's fascinating as you begin to delve into Scripture and see how Scripture talks about this, how the Apostle Paul shares this same story as he speaks to one of the churches. Probably it's suspected in the first letter that Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians. There was a little church up there in Thessalonica. And if you've ever looked at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, you'll see that the blue stuff, that's water. <laughs> that's the Mediterranean Sea. Over here we have what's called the Middle East and Syria. 
And then this area here is what we call modern day Turkey. And over here we have Greece. And I don't know if you travel much. My wife and I were able to just hop back to Moncton and back again uh, over the weekend. And we, we hopped in a car and we drove and there and back again. The Apostle Paul didn't hop in a car. He did it the old-fashioned way, on foot and by boat. And he traveled. Well, I have a couple of guys who can tell me how he traveled. They've got a bit of an English accent, but they'll tell you. The area that we're looking at is Thessalonica, and that's just up here. And that's present-day Salonica, or Salonica in, in Greece. But uh, here's what Paul did. If we have... Paul went on three big trips. The first was around 46 AD. Look, we're drawing a line. Starting in Antioch, Paul sailed to the island of Cyprus, then sailed up to Asia Minor and visited the city of Perga, another city called Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Then he did the whole thing backwards. Lystra, Iconium, the other Antioch, Perga, then Atalaya, then sailed all the way back to Antioch, 1,400 miles. He must have used a lot of gas. But now he was either in a boat or walking the whole way. I bet those Roman roads came in, Andy. They sure did. His next trip was much further. Around 49 AD, he walked to Tarsus, then Cilicia, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Phrygia. That sounds cold. I don't think it was. Then up to an area called Galatia, and all the way over to another called Mysia, then Troas, and then he visited Samothrace, Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, then all the way down to Athens, which is the center of Greek culture, then over to Corinth, where he stayed for a year and a half, then Sancri, then back on a boat and all the way over to Ephesus, then all the way down back across the Mediterranean, all the way to Caesarea. Whoa, what a long trip. And then to Jerusalem, 2,800 miles. He must have worn out his sneakers. I think he wore out several pair of sneakers. Paul went on three big trips. The first was around 46 AD. Look, we're drawing a <laughs> And of course, that's only two of his trips, but on the second one, around 49 AD is when he headed out, and he would have been in uh, Thessalonica around 50 AD. That's only about 20 or years or less after Christ rose from the dead. Within 20 years of Christ rising from the dead, Paul's already on his second journey. And as he arrived in each of these different places, some of them, like Thessalonica, he was only there for a matter of either weeks or months. Thessalonica, they think perhaps he was there three, maybe four months, and then went on to the next location. I want you to think about this for a minute. A servant of God comes into this community. You've never heard of Jesus before. 
He tells you that Christ has risen from the dead because you have some understanding of the Old Testament. He then shows you from the Old Testament how it was prophesied that Jesus would rise again from the dead, that he would come, the Messiah would do all these things. And after having done all these things, he would return to heaven and one day return as the final judge and king over all the earth and establish the kingdom of God. You hear this for the first time and the Spirit of God convicts you in your heart and you believe. And you gather with a few others who have also believed. In Thessalonica, we figure there was probably about 200,000 people in that town at that time. It was the center. A group could be as many as 20 believed and came to faith. And they took what they heard and began to live out the Christian faith. And in the first letter to Thessalonica or to the Thessalonians, Paul writes to encourage them because when he left, he was basically being encouraged to leave because a riot broke out in town. There were those who were so opposed to Christ, to, to the message of the Apostle Paul about Jesus as the Christ that they chased him out of town. And they made one of the leaders in that church, Jason, post a peace bond that Paul would not return. Quite a, quite a response. And now you're part of that group with this kind of a beginning and everyone is really upset with you because you are now part of this group and you are being persecuted and some of your number is being put to death. What are you going to do? Are you going to quit? Are you going to go underground? Are you going to become a, a, a silent Christian? What did the Thessalonians do? As we read through in Scripture, we see that though they had this brief visit from Paul, though they were now new to the faith in Christ, and this was a new congregation, and they were experiencing persecution, they flourished. Paul writes to them like this. Well, actually, this is what Jesus said about the disciples and what he says to us also. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit if you gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What will you give in return for your soul? See, Jesus shared this with his disciples. And when we come to faith in Christ, we too are disciples. That's what it means to be a member of a church. It means to be a disciple of Christ. We have so missed the mark in North America. We have seen becoming a Christian and joining a church as like joining the YMCA or YWCA or, or, or the golf, local golf club. We, we look for a church that will serve us. Well, I, 
I, I want a church that's got the right kind of music. I want a church that's got the right kind of preaching. I want a church that's got the right kind of building. And they'd better have air conditioning because I don't like those hot summers. And so we place all these conditions on the right church. And we look for a church that's going to meet our needs. Our needs and our need is to be like Christ. Not to be entertained, not to be comforted, but to be like Christ. And if we're looking for anything else, we're looking for the wrong thing. It's not the church you're looking for. You've heard it often said, if you're looking for the perfect church and you find it, stay out. <laughs> You'll spoil it. <laughs> A disciple is one who comes after Jesus, denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows Jesus. Not someone who looks for a group of people who will meet their needs. The Holy Spirit is the one who meets your needs. Our faith has often been described as being a mile wide and a half inch deep. As you look at it, it looks like there's this wonderful faith that's out there in North America. But as you begin to probe it, you find there's very little life because what can live in water that's only a half inch deep? The Lord isn't looking for a great show. The Lord is looking for depth. And the first thing that we can do to help build the church is to pray for her that she will be deep. Deep in faith. Praying for its growth and its spiritual health. As you read scripture, you see certainly from the letters of Paul that he was constantly praying for the people who came to faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church or to those believers in Thessalonica who have gathered together in the name of Jesus. To you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, may God give you grace and peace. His first prayer is a prayer of blessing. He prays blessing upon them. May God give you grace and peace. When was the last time you prayed for Emmanuel Baptist? Lord, grant her grace and peace. May your grace and peace be evident at Emmanuel Baptist. As we gather together, as we serve together, as we worship together, may your grace and peace be evident. We pray for its growth and its spiritual health. Look how he goes on in verse 2. He says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. 
So often as you read through the scripture, you, you read about the, the injunction to be in prayer continually. That means as often as the Spirit of God brings someone or, or something to mind, you raise it up to the Lord. And he's saying, I'm continually thanking God for you. I was with you only for a few months, but thank God for those few months. Well, I was with you, we were persecuted, and we faced great difficulty, but thank God the Spirit of God was sufficient for us. I thank God for you all, and I'm continuing to mention you in, in our prayers because it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy who are writing this letter collectively. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a wonderful prayer to pray for the church. Lord, we pray for Emmanuel Baptist that its work will be produced by faith. We pray for Emmanuel Baptist and all who come that there would be a labor that is prompted by love. And we continue to pray for this congregation that there will be an endurance that is inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you can take scripture and pray scripture and know that you're praying according to the will of God. And the scriptures tell us that if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that we have the things that we ask of him. Is that not right? Absolutely. You see, faith isn't just a feeling or an assent or an agreement with a doctrinal statement. There is a work that is produced by faith. Real faith produces change. If I really believe, it's going to affect the way I really live. Is that not true? There is a work that is produced by faith. I'm not saved by my work, but certainly my faith will produce a work. It's like the, the couple that said, we love each other. We're going to get married. And so they show up and uh, they say, yeah, we really love each other. We, they get married and then they shake hands and say, well, you have a great life. I'll see you later. And the husband goes his way and the wife goes hers. You say, what kind of a wedding was that? And there are people who say, yes, I believe in Jesus, but you see absolutely no effect on their lives. What kind of faith is that? If I really believe that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me and died for me, am I going to continue to live the way I lived? Knowing that Christ is asking me to walk with him, to take up my cross and follow him? If I say I believe in him, then I'm saying I believe I need to take up my cross and walk with Jesus. To live as Jesus lived. To love as Jesus loved. I can't separate those. A work produced by faith. A labor prompted by love. But I thought love was just a feel-good feeling. I thought it was just one of those, you know, oh, hug myself moments. <laughs> because I love myself. That's why. 
No, love is acting in the best interests of those around me, even if they don't love me back. And so there is a labor that's involved in love. And any of you who have ever loved, and if you're thinking of getting married and you're not married yet, and you think that your love is going to carry you through because you're thinking about how you feel about the other person and you haven't had to do the work or the labor of love yet, you'll soon discover in marriage that love is a labor. How do marriages make it to year five, year 10, 20, 30? Anyone here married 30 years? Whoa. My love will carry me through, right? It's, it's all feel good, right? Why are you laughing? <laughs> How about those of you who have been married 40 years? Whoa. 50. My goodness. God bless you. God bless you. That is a labor of love. How do you get to be married for 50 or 60 years, some 70 and some even longer? Because you did the hard work of learning to bite your tongue. You did the hard work of forgiving. You did the hard work you did the labor prompted by love. How can we get along as a church? How can I put up with these people who annoy me so much? <laughs> oh, did you see the way they looked at me? They, I know what they were thinking. <laughs> there is a labor of love. And it is only as we do this labor of love that we can hold together as a body of Christ. And we need to make this our prayer, that our faith will produce works, that our love will be a love of seeking the best for the people around us, that it is that labor of love. And your endurance inspired by hope. I know Jesus is coming again. And this whole book of first and the second letter as well, uh, uh, first and second Thessalonians speak of the second coming of Jesus, where he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And all injustice is finally dealt with. And he is the Lord over all the earth looking to that day and knowing that I will give account for how I live causes me to want to endure difficulties because of that hope that is ahead of me. That I will see him as he is. And I need to be praying for my church. I need to be praying for those around me and praying especially for those who bug me. <laughs> that God will give them this work of faith, this labor of love, and this endurance of hope. It's very practical. And I can also seek to advance the mission of my church by inviting others to attend. Well, what does that look like? 
What does it look like to invite others to attend? As Paul goes on writing, and this is all from the first chapter of the book of Thessalonians. We know, he says, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. With the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. There was an example of lifestyle that demonstrated to the Thessalonians or Thessalonians, depending on how you want to say it, that Paul had taken up his cross and was following Jesus as a disciple of Christ. They could see it in him. And seeing it in him, they began to follow his example. And their lifestyle became inviting. It says you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So even though this was a message that was costing them, they embraced it and they began to live it out and show it and demonstrate it. So you became a what? A model. They welcomed the message. They became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, for your faith or your faith in God has become known everywhere. What is more inviting than coming to a location where people are living out their faith? What could be more inviting than that? I'm told that millennials, and I think that's probably half of you here, are looking for reality. You want substance. This is substance. Becoming a welcoming of the message, of becoming a model to others around of how your life and your belief and your faith and your, your enduring even in suffering becomes well known to everyone. If you want to see real faith, you want to go there to Emmanuel. Man, those people hang in there. You, you want to know what the love of Christ is like? You go there. Is that not inviting? Is that not the type of church you want to go to? Isn't that what you want to be as a people of God? Can I get an amen? Amen. Praying for the growth and spiritual health, inviting others to attend, and warmly welcoming all. We have a seminar afterwards for all of our welcome crew on how to be welcoming. And if anyone wants to come, you're invited. Hey, that's welcoming. Thank you. <laughs> the Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your, your faith in God is, is becoming known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves, that is the people around, the community, those that Paul is encountering as he continues on that whirlwind journey that he's on. As he goes around, people are telling him, 
man, we heard about what the people in Thessalonica are like and how their faith is, has really caught fire and how they're going on for the Lord. We don't need to say anything about your faith because others are reporting what kind of reception you gave us. I don't have to brag about you. Other people are doing the bragging for me. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And in that one sentence is the answer to why there was so much persecution. They were turning to God from idols. And guess who got really upset? The idol makers. They weren't selling their idols. The reputation of their idols was now in jeopardy. And you see that everywhere where the gospel went, idols began to fall. False beliefs began to fall. How you turn to God from idols, that's a good definition of faith. Turning to God from idols, from false belief, to the living and true God. Why? To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. You see, they were welcoming of those who held faith, of those who knew the Lord. They were embracing them, and welcoming carries with it the sense of hospitality, being hospitable to those and showing them the kind of support and encouragement that is needed. In one church that my wife and I were involved with as, as interims, we would come into the church and the first sign that I saw coming through the door before I saw anything else was a sign that said, no cups in the sanctuary. <laughs> that was the first thing I saw and they must have meant it because there was no coffee time. And one of the first things that we did was to politely cover up the sign <laughs> with another sign that said, glad you're here. What message did the first send? What message did the second send? And then we initiated a coffee time. And people were a little bit indignant. Why would you do that? Don't they have homes to drink coffee in? <laughs> what would you do that? And, and we kept trying to say, it's not about the coffee. It's about showing hospitality. We're inviting people into our home. Do you not offer them a, a cup of tea or coffee or a glass of water when they come into your home? This is a place where we gather as the family of God to worship God. Do we not want to be hospitable? And they were demonstrating hospitality to the servant of God. It begins there and it continued on for them. So if I'm concerned that this church grow and blossom and become a witness to the Lord, I want to continue to pray for its growth and its spiritual health. I want to invite others to attend, and I want it to be an inviting place because faith is real here. Not because we just say, good morning, and shake a hand, but because faith is real. 
and we want to be truly welcoming of all by demonstrating hospitality in a way that touches lives. Amen? Amen.